So thanks for coming. Uh, as everyone knows, uh, we're a few days before Rosh Hashanah, so I want to just um, just maybe zero in on, on on some thoughts about that, and uh, and let's just let's just start there. So so there's a very very interesting discussion about the the. Uh, the Ten Commandments, okay? And basically, the, the way it works is, when Hashem gave it to us, there, there are two tablets, five on one side and five on the other side, okay? And the first five relate to uh, a human being's obligation to the Almighty. And the second five relate to our uh, obligations to each other. So, to put it in more fancy terms, the first is Adam Lamachon, and Adam Mechaveiro. That's, that's, those are the sort of the classical ways of defining these things. Uh, a human to his maker and a, a, a human to each other. Okay. So, so far so good. But we have a little bit of a question there, which is in the first five which are, um, which are set aside for a human being's obligation to, to God, um, it begins with, um, I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, you should have no other gods before me. So the, the, first, the first commandment, if you will, of the ten, is uh, um, a declaration of faith, that there's a, there's a commandment to believe in God. Then there's a, there's, it's followed by an understanding that um, uh, one has to um, have no other gods other than God. And we have to understand what that means on a deeper level, um, which is that it's not that God is in the marketplace with other gods, and God is saying, choose me, don't choose them. That's not it. And this is a very important thing that we have to constantly remind ourselves of. God, by saying, don't serve other gods, what God is saying um, is that there is no other God other than me. In other words, Judaism doesn't say, our God is the best God. Judaism, the Torah says, the truth is, is that there is only one power. We say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, it's not that God is the strongest. There is no other power other than Him. So, so, so we have to recognize every other conception of a deity is, is, a, is falsehood. Is falsehood. There's only one power, there's only one God, that's Hashem. Okay. Now we go on, don't take Hashem's name in vain. So, that means you shouldn't bear, um, shouldn't use God to, to lie and advance your own agenda and all sorts of things like this. Okay. You can see how all these things... Like, Is it too early to ask a question? Um, no, you can answer it now. Okay. okay. Um, can you give me an example of a non-God that purports to be God. Right. So, so, so we have to understand, you know what? I'm going to answer that question. Okay. But I'm going to, I'll do it during the course of the, the okay. talk, if that's okay. So and if it's still not answered, then we'll return to it more pointedly. All right, thanks. Okay. Um, so, so now, yeah, with, to make, I'm going to, let me just answer that in a, a real nuts and bolts way. This is not a comprehensive answer to your question, but but when we as, 
ascribe power to, say, money or to materialism, um, to um, status, things like this, where we feel as though, you know something, um, uh, I can only, that my, my, my blessing comes from that thing, as opposed to from God, who perhaps gave it to me in this way. We, we, we tend to do that, and, and we tend to do that in a very subtle, um, unconscious way, almost. We'll ascribe power to things, and we don't, we don't follow through in terms of our thought process, and realize that that all comes from God. And in that way, in a very sort of subtle but um, spiritually corrupting way, we then make these other powers in our life. Sometimes our boss at work or sometimes uh, a familial relationship, or something like that, we perceive that as an independent power, as opposed to an expression of our relationship with God. Okay? And, and the thought goes on from there, but that's a, a real nuts and bolts application of it. Okay. So I'm building to um, a thought, uh, which, is, which is the following. Here's, here's what I'm getting at. Everyone asks the following question. In this first five set of commandments, which we said are exclusively reserved for our relationship with God, it says, you should honor your father and your mother. Now, wait a second. Doesn't that sound like an interpersonal commandment? And if it's an interpersonal commandment, doesn't that belong in the, in the second set of five on the, on the, on the other set? Oh, uh, Luchos, you know, this is sort of designed to mirror the, the, the tablets, you know? I often think when the rabbi is sitting here, it looks like golden wings, doesn't it? Um, but, but anyway, you have the first five here. It's in the first five. Honoring your parents. Well, how does that work exactly? Why is that an expression of serving God? Because we're told that that's an expression of serving God. Okay? So, so now listen to this. We can get a little bit deeper now. Okay? Well... God is obviously teaching you about how to serve Him by serving your parents. Just like God made you, on a more nuts and bolts level, your parents made you, right? And just like you have an obligation to God, well, you have an obligation to your parents. Okay, there's a pretty nice parallel there. Okay? And in fact, you know, there's a teaching in the Torah which, um, which is it's a little confounding when you first hear it. It says that it takes 40 years to understand what your rabbi is talking about. <laughs> we, we tend to think that, um, we tend to, <coughs> excuse me, we tend to think that I either get it or I don't get it. You know? Like, people are very fond of saying, uh, I get it, I get it, you know? Or, um, or uh, exactly. I, I heard a great quote from Vladimir uh, Nabokov, the, uh, the author. And um, he said that he really detests when he says something and someone else says exactly. Right? He, he felt that that's a chutzpah, that this person should say exactly to him. Like, you know exactly what I just said. And his response was something just golden, I thought. Which is, he says, he said back to the person, please don't understand me too quickly. Sometimes it's nice if you feel bad. Yeah. No, it's very, it's a, it's a, on a social level, it's a beautiful thing. 
On the social level, it's a beautiful thing. But but let's just make the the separation between a social convention and, and what's actually happened in, in the realm of truth. You know, so it takes 40 years. We're told to understand what your rabbi is talking about. Why is that? Why is that? Because intellectually, if you tell me don't turn the lights on on Shabbos, are you going to tell me that it takes me 40 years to understand that I shouldn't turn the lights on on Shabbos? Or if it's already on, don't turn them off, right? No, I get that right away. So what are you talking about 40 years? So, so what, what we have to understand is that all the teachings of the Torah are infinite. And not only that, but you have um, what I would say a distinction. We talked about it once. Knowledge and wisdom. Okay? This is, these are my words, but I'm, I'm, I'm creating a, 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 a reference point for you to understand what this means 40 years. Knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is you get it in your head. Wisdom is, is that you're, uh, you're able to apply it in life. You know, you have a lot of people like, um, you know, young rabbis, right, who are, people come and they say, well, they, they give them very difficult uh, family, complicated situations. You don't want to go to a young rabbi with a complicated family situation. You want to go to someone who's talked to a lot of people over decades and sees how advice actually plays out in the real world. Okay? That takes a long time. You need the, the realm of experience. What's so awesome about the Torah is that the Torah, the wisdom of the Torah, has been practiced in every single country all over the world, over thousands of years, and we've seen that it works. It works in every age, with every secular set of assumptions that are reigning in that time. It works in every age, and it works in every cultural situation, in every geographical situation. I mean, if you want a better example of wisdom that's been tested and works, nothing, nothing is a better example than the Torah itself. But oftentimes, you need, you need time to see something. You know, there are a lot of people, um, myself included, where, you know something, you, you, you heard it when you were younger, and it made sense, and it took you years and years to apply it to your own life. Because you weren't in a life place <coughs> to apply it yet. You know, Reb Sadiqa one of the great Torahs I ever heard, in his name, from I heard it from Reb Shlomo, was that he said, um, the world says that uh, people say that the world is moving further and further away from God. And Rapsodic says, I say that the world is moving further and further away from God on the outside and closer and closer on the inside. What, what does that mean in terms of our own lives and in terms of what we see going on around us today? That means that a lot of times we see when people become more and more, say, hedonistic, or more and more materialistic, that that is, represents a, an increasing level of rejection of the truth, or of God, or of the Torah. Because one's practices seem to be more and more openly against what the Torah is saying. And yet, on a much deeper level, what's often happening is that people are pursuing every possible avenue and saying, maybe the truth is over here. Maybe the truth is over there. Maybe the truth is over there. And they become increasingly brazen 
more and more tattooed, more and more bodily pierced. I'm, I'm being quite literal in those examples. But what they're seeing is the truth isn't there, and the truth isn't there, and the truth isn't there. And on the inside, they're coming closer and closer to the truth of the Torah. And finally they say, you know, at a point where someone who's not on the level would look at them and go, I'm not even going to talk to you, I'm not even going to pay you any mind. You know, look at you, you're, 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 you're like a, an ice bar, you know. It's a, a Yiddish insult. <laughs> but what's the, what's the reality? The reality is on the inside, they're right there, because they've rejected every non-truth. They've rejected every non-truth, and they're ready for the truth at that point. So on the outside, they're going further and further away. On the inside, they're coming closer and closer. Right? How do you know when the person that goes and they order pork in that restaurant, that it's like, they're in, in, inside, on the outside, it's like, I, they're learning so much and they're still eating pork, but on the inside, they might be saying, you know something, I'm going to try it one last time, just to make sure it's not it. You know? And they try to go, you know, how can I, how can I invest my eternity in this piece of meat? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I've had it. I know what it tastes like. On to the next. You know, interestingly, if you want to know, yeah, I'll, you see, a lot of the problems that people have in terms of taking on the, the higher levels of the Torah and understanding the Torah is that they they view it as a rejectionist system. And it's not, it, that, that isn't it. That's, a, that's such a misunderstanding of what the Torah is. <coughs> you know what the Torah, you know what the rabbis say about pork? They say, don't say it's disgusting. It's known that pork is delicious. It's known that it's delicious. The rabbis say, say that it's delicious, but what can I do? My Father in Heaven told me not to eat it. I mean, that's a very embracing tradition that has a teaching like that. Okay. So we have to go further. This idea of parents, in a way then, to put it another way, are like training wheels in terms of understanding your relationship with Hashem. You, you, these are your makers, so to speak, so to speak, right? Because a person comes from their mother, undeniably, and their father, right? So, so you, 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 you respect and you honor your makers, and so it makes sense that it's in the first five set of commandments because it, it teaches you about Hashem. Now listen to this. I think that this is very beautiful. It also says, by the way, that it's the hardest mitzvah in the Torah. Okay? Maybe because, let's say, I want to, uh, you know, let's say I want to um, put on tefillah. Okay? So I put on tefillah, and then I did the mitzvah. Okay, but if I want to honor my parents, that, that takes decades, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, every time you do it, it's an aspect of the mitzvah, but it's, it's, that's a long mitzvah to get done. You know, that's not, that's not like, okay, I lit the candles, I did the mitzvah. This is, wow, this takes a long time. This takes a lifetime, this mitzvah. So that's another aspect of why it's so hard. But listen to this point. After a person's parents leave the world, they are still obligated to honor their parents. The mitzvah doesn't end after their parents leave this world. One has an ongoing obligation to honor their parents. And in fact, it says, perhaps, that one should even honor them more 
Now, now listen to this on a spiritual level. This thought came to me this week. Maybe it's an obvious known thought. I don't know. I haven't heard If the mitzvah of honoring your parents is in the first five set of commandments, and it's ultimately about serving God, think about the evolution as a person grows up. Remember, we said it takes 40 years to understand what your teacher is saying. First, you honor your parents, which is a tangible aspect of God, if you will. Right? It's a here and now. It's a living, breathing example. You get it. You get it. Right? And then it evolves. Your parents leave. They become invisible. Like God can't be seen or touched on some level. Right? And so all of a sudden, ah, now I've evolved. I've elevated myself. Now I really see how this is really about serving God. Okay? By the way, this idea is in different places in Torah. For instance, it's a bit of a controversial um, uh, point of view, but it comes from the Rambam. So, I mean, anything that the Rambam says has to be taken with the utmost seriousness. He says that the sacrifices were actually a way of addressing um, a sort of like a, a, a still evolving state of spirituality among the Jewish people. That the, that, the, that the offerings brought to the temple were sort of like more of the mindset of that day. And so God gave us those offerings in order for us, for, in order for him to tap into our mindset of that day, but we would evolve beyond that. Okay? So that's, 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 that's an idea sometimes that you have a mitzvah, but the mitzvah is there in order to, to go up. I'll give you another example of it. Moshe Rabbeinu is told to hit the rock in the desert and water comes from it. The next time, Hashem says, take your staff in your hand and speak to the rock and water will come from it. Now we know Moshe made a mistake. He hit the rock the second time. He was supposed to speak to the rock. So some of the commentators say that this was also the evolving relationship of the Jewish people with Hashem. In the beginning, like a student, a young student, you have to like discipline them. That's hitting the rock, right? You discipline them. But then, over the 40 years, we've evolved to the place where you don't have to hit the rock anymore. You just have to speak to the rock. And that will be enough for the water to come out. So, again, we have this idea of this, this evolution. Okay. So I still haven't gotten to the point yet. So, but, but, but we're getting closer. So we see that the first five mitzvahs contain this surprising mitzvah, which is honoring your parents. Now, how that sounds like an interpersonal relationship. And yet we are told that the first five are exclusively between a human being and God. But now we see that, wait a second, there is really a spiritual element, there's really a godly relationship that's being called upon in terms of your honoring your parents. And, and really pointedly put, when your parents leave the world and, and you're serving your parents. Okay, so, so, so there we have it. Okay, very good. Now, now we're going to get to Rosh Hashanah. Now listen to this. This blows me away every time I think of that. I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Beis Yosef, Beis Yaakov, I'm sorry, who's the second Yishvitzer Rebbe, that deep down, you ready for this? Deep down, every single person thinks that they actually created themselves. So, that's a mind-blowing thought. That's a mind-blowing insight into human psychology. I'll say it again. And I'm not saying that this is on a rational level, because obviously this is not a rational 
down, every single person thinks that they actually created themselves. Now, what's Rosh Hashanah all about? Rosh Hashanah is all about recognizing Hashem, that Hashem exists, and Hashem is king, and Hashem is the ultimate parent. And now all of a sudden we have in our heart, whether we're aware of it or not, we have this truth that's been revealed to us. That deep, deep down, I think I made myself. Now that's something that has to be addressed in every single person. Because obviously a person is never going to make any kind of real progress in terms of their life, in terms of their journey of their soul in this world, in terms of this lifetime, until they address this point within themselves. So, I was thinking of a way to express this. Imagine, imagine you have a fortress. And this fortress is guarded on all sides. Big, strong walls on all sides. And it was constructed in order to guard against outside attacks. Right? Now, and to protect the land that's yours. Right? Now, what if that fortress was built 100% undisputedly on someone else's land? Well, that's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because who does that land belong to? Does it belong to you? Or does it belong to the undisputed owner of the land? It kind of belongs to the undisputed owner of the land, doesn't it? So this is us. This is us. This is us. We build this barrier around ourselves and we plant our flag and we say, there's God and there's me. But what did I do? I planted my flag on God's land. I planted my flag on God's land, God who made my hand and who made the flag and who made the fortress. So what's Rosh Hashanah about? Rosh Hashanah is about taking down the walls, right? Or at least, at least opening the gates. At least opening the gates. Right? Yeah, you know, I heard you say surrender. So, so I let me let me just um, let me just discuss that word for a moment because it's it's a good opening, but we we have to continue the the thought that that suggests because when I surrender, at least in the um, the the um, the, the, uh, the implication. I surrender when I lose. I surrender when I lose. But this is not a this is not a this is not a loss. This is not a loss. On some level, it is because I'm letting go. I'm letting go of a falsehood. So in in that sense, I am letting go. I am surrendering of something. But I don't lose when I do this type of surrender. Because what am I doing? I'm letting God in. 
And that's the ultimate. I don't want to keep God out. Why would I want to keep God out? It's sort of like special delivery. Why should I open up the door? Well, I've got truckloads of amazing stuff. Mm, I don't know. I didn't order any of that stuff. Oh, that's okay. It's a gift for you. It's free? 100% free. And you're outside with it right now? Yes. But I have to open the door. <laughs> I have to open the door. Why again? <laughs> because I have tremendous stuff for you. All right. Well, I'll open it up a little bit. <laughs> Just to be out. Okay, I see the stuff. That looks pretty good. Who's it for again? It's for you. And how much is it again? It's free. All right, I'll open up the door a little bit more. Why don't you bring like a little bit of this stuff in? Just so I can make sure that I really want this stuff, you know? So, there's a, there's a, a, a level of trust that has to be built up also. There is a level of trust that has to be built up also. So now, you know, um, okay. Sorry. Can I no, 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 go for it. Go for okay, it. I have a problem with this, and I've had yes. a problem with this for a long time, okay, and I realize I have a problem with this. This is all assuming that it's yes. very easy to open the door. But yeah. sometimes the doors are stuck. You want to, and you can only open it a crack, and you're like, okay, is it open yet? And you keep on trying to open it, but you don't even know what it's like when it's open. So how are you supposed to open it? Right, right. Okay, so I like... Let's go back to this visualization of this fortress wall. I don't know if you've ever seen it in movies or anything like that, but those doors are heavy doors. They're enormously large doors. And, you know, they're like, you know, ten times the height of a person. And, you know, to, to push them open, you, it's not just one person. You know, usually it's more than one person. So, so if, you, if you... The first thing, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, because, you see, I think one of the... And I, I want to talk about this maybe more in Rosh Hashanah itself and, 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 and during the next string of holidays. One of the things that I think um, to, uh, to our detriment that gets left out of every spiritual discussion, including often my own, um, is how much work all of these things take. You see, we, we, we tend to think that, again, Let's, let's go back to this idea that it takes 40 years to understand what your rabbi is talking about, right? So, we tend to think, if I get it, and I believe it, and I like it, and I want it, then I have it. No, that last part. <laughs> no. You can get it, you can like it, you can believe it, you can want it, doesn't mean you have it. The having it part actually takes work. And what does that mean? What does it mean, work? That means that I have to be aware of my thoughts. I have to be aware of my um, levels of belief and disbelief. I have to be aware of my emotional states. And I have to, I have to carve these things into my heart. I have to carve them into my heart. And this can take... Um, you know, I heard, I think it was the Ger Rebbe who said this. And this is a humbling thought. Because we're talking about the Ger Rebbe. So, I mean, the Chudusha Rebbe, okay? He said that it took him seven years to apply what it means to have a good eye for someone else. 
And then it took him many more years to figure out what a good eye was. Now the Gare Rebbe, we're talking about someone who is 1,000% dedicated to doing the Torah, who has one of the biggest souls that God's ever brought down into the world. And he himself testified about himself that it took him seven years to have a good eye for other people. After many more years of trying to figure out what it was to begin. So if that's not ringing testimony to how long it takes to actually put these things into our lives, I, I can't think of a better example right now. So when you talk about opening up the gate, how do you open up the gate? It's not a screen door. Like, flies open. It's not a screen door. So recognizing the heaviness of that door to begin with, and recognizing that any, you know, have you ever had this experience where um, the shades are down in your room, and the, um, and it's, but it's a sunny day, and you just pull up like the shades, or you park the curtains a little bit, and a shaft of light comes in, and you're amazed how much a little light actually brightens up the room. You know, when you're even pushing those gates open a little bit, there's some intense light that's coming in at that moment. You know? several years, so I'm going to attempt to say it right now, which is always risky. So, because it's a little bit abstract, but hopefully I can say it clearly and you'll, you'll be with me. You know, when we like the Hanukkah menorah, we, every day, we go like base hillel, which is every day we increase in the light. And that makes perfect sense, because more light, fantastic, right? Like, why would we, why would we not go in, in terms of increasing the light, right? But Beishamai has another shita, right? He's got another opinion, which is much harder to understand, and we don't do it in practice. And yet, this is Beishamai, who certainly, I mean, give him a little bit of credit. You don't think he got the idea of increasing in light? Like, this, like a kindergartner is going to get that idea. So how does he have the chutzpah, so to speak, to recommend that you start off with eight candles, and every single day you, you, you light one less candle. Where does that come in? Where, where's the spirituality in that thought exactly? You know? Much harder to understand that thought. So now listen to this. I was thinking about it one time. Here's what he said. The reason why you decrease in light, okay, is because on the first day, in terms of the level of miracle that was contained in the oil, there was eight days of light. On the next day, there was seven days of miracle left in the light. On the sixth day, on the third day, I'm sorry, on the third day, there was six days of, of, uh, of miracle left in the light. So, in other words, in other words, you're decreasing in light, but what you're doing is you're mirroring exactly the amount, by the number of lights that you're lighting, the amount of potential light that, that was there. I, is that clear? So, again, eight days, you, you light eight lights because there's eight, eight, eight days worth of miracle in the light. 
On the second day, you have seven candles because there's seven miracle days left in the oil. Is that clear? So, so while, while it looks like you're decreasing in the light, every single day you are bringing into the world 100% of the miracle that's contained within the oil. Is that clear? Is that clear? I mean, right? Because, let's say, on the last day, you're only lighting one candle, but there's one day's left of miracle in the light. So you are maximizing 100% of the potential miracle you are bringing into the world. Every single day, it looks like you're going down, but every single day, you're bringing 100% of the potential miracle that it exists in the oil, you're bringing it out in the world. Now, you know something? It's one thing to increase, but that's like, to me, if I'm based shy, that sounds like, oh, you mean you, you need eight days to get warmed up? Or you need seven days to get warmed up for the eighth, for the eighth day when you're blowing out the full blast of light? I'm showing you a way where you can bring 100% of your potential into the world every single day. You're telling me I'm bringing less light into the world? It takes you eight days to do what I'm doing every single day. Did anyone get that? So, what's... How is God saying that? Well, Shammai is saying it on behalf of God. So, so coming back to, to you... Big heavy doors. Giant doors. You open it a little bit. That light that's coming in is 100% of the light that you can do in your life at that point. Don't confuse it by saying, well, I just opened up a crack. You open up a crack because that's what you can do at that point in your life. But 100% of the light that can come in is coming in at that moment. So what you're doing is the full on. That's the full on. So, so Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, we've got to address this question in a serious way. Who made me? Did I make me? Or did God make me? Because if God made me, then I'm God's. And, you know, can you, you know, can you imagine, it's like, um, someone hires you to work at a 7-Eleven, right? And you're at the 7-Eleven, and you're like, it's lunchtime. What am I going to make for lunch? Well, let's see, over here we've got, uh, we've got bread. I think I'll make myself a sandwich. So I open up the, the Wonder Bread, right? And it's sort of like, here, we've got some sandwich meat over here. I've got some mustard over here. And I'm, 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 and then, oh, cookies and ice cream. And, you know, and I set myself up a, a little table and a chair. And, you know, someone walks in and asks me to do something. And I say, you know what? I'm eating lunch right now. I might have some time later on this afternoon to help you out. You know? It's like, first of all, 
it's not your store. It's not your kitchen. You're treating it like it's your kitchen. Second of all, you're there to work, and you're treating it like your house. So what are we doing in this world? Did I make me, or did God make me? If I made me, then I can say, God, you know something? Oh, Rosh Hashanah is coming up. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll try to believe in you on Rosh Hashanah, maybe. There's some other things I have to do, but I'm going to try to get to shul. And, um, you know. But if God made me, then, then this is God's world, and I'm living God's life. And that's kind of all there is, right? I want to... I want to say this, this point in another way. Because, again, the Torah is... is radically misunderstood. And the mitzvot of the Torah... By the way... The best example in the world, mitzvot, translated as commandments. Like, who translated that as commandments? Like, I want to subpoena that guy and prosecute him. Right? Who, who dares translate the word mitzvot as commandments? Look what that person did. And I'm sure they meant the best. They transformed God into a factory foreman. Right? With a bullhorn and a whip. Who gave him permission to do that? Mitzvah is something, it means, it's sab, it's, it's, it's something that, that binds you to God. Or as, as Rep Shlomo put it, they're divine pathways that, that God instructs us to walk down in order to connect with Him. So, so we'll start to wrap it up, but I want to say one more, one more piece, and and just to show how how the Torah liberates. So one of my favorite teachings in the world, I heard it from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishvitzer Rebbe, and he says like as follows. There's two words for, there, there are many words for happiness in, in Hebrew, but let's contrast two words. Simcha and Omeg. Simcha, Reb Shlomo translates as joy, and Omeg, he translates as bliss. So bliss is higher than joy. Okay? So Simcha, he says, the Ishvitzer says, Simcha is when God gives you something that you didn't have before. Oneg, bliss, is when Hashem shows you what it is you've had all along. Right? Something even higher. Okay? So, so let's go further with this thought. You see, it's very much connected, I realized, to another teaching that we have in, in Perkei Avos that says, who is the rich person? Someone who is Sameya Bechelko. Someone who is happy with what they have. You see, joy, if I get something
something that I didn't have before. That means some sort of outside source is giving me something that I didn't have before. That means my joy is tied on some level to something external to me. Okay? Someone who's happy with what they have, they already have it. It's something that it's something that they already possess. They are not attaching their happiness to something that's outside of them. It's already within them. Okay? So, let's go deeper. This past Friday night at the, at the Happy Meeting, you know, this to me is an example of my favorite aspect of the Minion, or one of my favorite aspects of the Minion, is sometimes, like, uh, there will be just a moment where, just like the, the heavens open, so to speak, like, it'll, there will be a dance, but sometimes that dance will go into something else, there will be a song, and somehow that song just doesn't end. It just kind of just, like, you know, goes, like, into the stratosphere. Doesn't always happen. But it ha- if, you, if you attend the services regularly, it happens pretty regularly, you know? And depending on who you are and where you're at and everything like that. Okay. This past Friday night, there was this dance, and then the dance broke off into another dance. <laughs> and that other dance, the only way I can describe it, and... Um, the point is not to describe the spiritual experience, but to get back to this teaching, is I would say that I disappeared and the world disappeared. Okay? And, um, so, you see, returning back to the original thing that we said, there's nothing in the world other than God. We say, Ain od novado. There's nothing other than Him. There's nothing other than God. That's the only reality in the world, is God. I have a soul. We all have a soul. Our soul is a piece of God. What is Onet? What is the ultimate bliss? The ultimate bliss is Hashem shows you what it is that you've had all along. If you realize that the only thing that exists in reality, in the universe, is God, and that you have, you know, have you ever had this experience, I don't know if you ever followed the stock market, where a stock goes up like 24 points that day? It doesn't happen that often, but you're like, oh man, I wish I had that stock. You know, you have that, your soul is stock in God. You have the best stock in the entire world. You have it. Rosh Hashanah, and this is every day, but Rosh Hashanah especially, it's that recognition of there's only God and I'm part of that reality. This is the ultimate bliss. This is the ultimate bliss. 